Scripture's reading is from Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Now a man from house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman con- conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made bullbrush and dabbed it with butman and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bath at the river while a young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took a pit on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you the wage, your wage. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> so today you get, you get an international treat, I guess. Well, part, part of it's a treat and then comes me. Um, and you can decide at the end if it's a treat or not. Um, my name's Kenny Cluett. I, I know some of you. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm an associate pastor here at Christ Community. I work with Jeanette in Extension Ministries. Um, and a bit of my background, I'm a, I was born in the United States, but actually raised in Spain. My wife is here. She's from Spain. Um, and we actually came to the States about four years ago for me to go to seminary, and the plan was to go straight back to Spain and work as a pastor and help. So, so halfway through seminary, we kind of discovered, or I, I kind of started feeling, this is a lot of information. Um, this is a lot of head knowledge, and, and as I go back to Spain, I'm not really sure I'm going to be able to know how to apply this well. Because it, it's one thing to learn theology, it's one thing to have it in your head and have all these principles, it's another thing to actually live this in your flesh and blood. Um, and, and I started feeling the weight of that. So, so Martha and I started wondering, would there be a church here in the United States? Would there be a place, a healthy leadership structure that we could sit under for a while before we're required to be that leadership structure? Um, and we ran into these guys in... in Kansas City called Christ Community, and we said, we don't want to go to Kansas City. We don't want to live on a farm. You know, you know what I mean? Like, everyone thinks Kansas City is a farm, and we were amongst them. Um, you know, we're like, well, there's tornadoes there, and Dorothy, and yeah. But, but as, we, as we started engaging with this church, we found out about this fellowship program. If you're, you, you're new here, let me just explain um, what, what it is very briefly. Christ Community has something called the pastoral residency. And basically what they do is, is every year they bring in a couple um, graduates from seminary, and they hire them as pastors. 
Um, but you're not just a pastor. It's kind of like a teaching hospital where you're engaged in pastoral activity. You're actually doing the work of a pastor, but you also get to do all kinds of other learning stuff. You get to sit in elder meetings. Um, you, you get to go to conferences with some of the other pastors. You get to meet with some of the other fellows and young campus pastors and learn by standing next to them. You get to preach, um, even in pulpits like this. And we have found it to be, we're about one year through this, and we found it to be such a blessing. I just wanted to thank you as a congregation because your generosity allows this to happen. Um, your generosity allows the church to invest heavily in next generation leaders, and not just for here in the United States, which is very important, but also even for people like me <laughs> that get sent overseas, and who knows what we're going to do when we get back. <laughs> yeah, we, we, may, you know, we, we may never have anything, um, any kind of contribution back to this church, but still, you, you believe in the value of, of raising up pastors and sending them out for the church in the world. So I just wanted to thank you for that this morning as we get started. Um, often people ask me, you know, what's, what's different about Spain? You know, what, what's the, and, and there's a lot of answers to that. There's a lot of things that are very different. Um, but one of those things is this, in, in Spain, we tell stories a lot to get points across. And I think it, it, with Katachi, we have a similar conversation. Let's tell stories. Um, ra- rather than trying to make points, you know, or, or cite statistics, because um, sometimes life is a little more complicated than stories and statistics. Um, sorry, than, than argument, clean arguments and statistics. So we tell stories and try to let people kind of get into those stories and understand. And of course, this isn't something that just Spaniards do. Um, it's something that Americans do as well. But it's also something that's been done forever in all civilizations, including the Hebrew civilization and the Bible. Um, and today I'm really excited because we're going to go through a story. As we start this Moses series, it's about a story it's a real story, a real historical account, but it's a story that helps shape our mind and, and helps us to see things the way God sees things if we live in this story long enough. Um, so that's what I want to do this morning. And, and one thing that's interesting about the story of Moses and the story of Exodus is on the one hand, just how powerful it is. This story has shaped people groups for many, many years, not just Jewish people groups. It's shaped people groups here in the United States in Latin America and Africa and many different places. Um, but it's not just a powerful story that shapes them. It's also a powerful story that's relevant and powerful for us today. Um, why? why is this? Because it paints a vivid picture of God working in the midst of the most dire, despairing, and desperate circumstances. And it's not hard to relate in our world today, is it? I mean, let, let's think of the news over the past few days. Last Friday, over 60 people killed in terrorist attacks in a factory in France, a beach in Tunisia, and a mosque in Kuwait. Recently, NPR did a report um, that, that kind of shored up the 90 million recognized refugees around the world. Let me, let me just repeat that to you. 90 million refugees, people that do not have a country. And there are some people from nonprofits saying, we don't, we don't know what to do anymore. We don't have the capacity. The UN doesn't have the capacity to manage this. We need to get our world together because these people are everywhere. And this isn't counting people that are um, refugeed in their own countries, like a lot of people in this country and other places. A couple weeks ago, we all heard this, the death of nine African-Americans in a church, in a church in Charleston, South Carolina, reminding us as a country of our continued struggle with racism and violence. Friends, our world is broken. And for many, many people, it's not getting better. Nothing seems to be working in this desperate thing we call existence. And this is exactly how Exodus 1 and 2 begins. A people, a people 
in a desperate world, in a dire situation, crying out, oh God, where are you now? Oh God, where are you now? So if you will, let's open our Bibles and let's get into this story. And th- this sermon's gonna sound a little different than the stuff that a lot of us are used to. Um, there's not gonna be a lot of application points that are very explicit, but I just want us to live in this story for a while, to, to drink in the symbolic world of the Old Testament and see if God may not use that to shape our hearts to see this world the way he sees this world and to see his activity the way he sees it. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus um, chapters one and two. And actually, I'm gonna read it from this sheet. So the story begins with the transition from the last chapter, um, Genesis. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're kind of five books that go together. And the first chapter was Genesis. Um, and you might remember this. There's this family, the end of Genesis, this family, Jacob, later named Israel, the father, and his 12 sons, they'd miraculously made it to Egypt, escaping a severe famine that affected all the Middle East and parts of Africa. Um, and one of these sons, Joseph, remember him with the multicolored coat um, singing Elvis, if some of you have seen that play? Um, he'd become a, a high official in Egypt. And, and he managed to get his family into this country and, and to get them a region of land. They were pastors, or, or shepherds, sorry. In Spanish, the word pastor and shepherd is the same. See that? That's important. Um, and they'd kind of gained a special immigration status, right? They were kind of a privileged immigration group that had their own little land. And Egypt was like, this is cool. You can use it. You blessed our country. Let's have a good relationship. Um, and they're doing well for the first few generations. That's how, the, that's how Exodus starts out. It gives us the list of people that are there. Um, and verse 7 summarizes this. So let's look down to verse, chapter 1, verse 7. Um, and it says this. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew extre- exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Looks pretty good. But then there was a problem. Because you see, the Israelites were never made full citizens of the land. So after 400 years, 400 years, that's more than the history of this country. That's almost double the history of this country. They still remain foreigners, immigrants, second-class citizens in this land. Even though they brought so much good to this country, they saved the country from a famine. They're prospering. They're economically contributing to the good. They weren't considered pure Egyptians. So when they started growing and getting comfortable in the land, the Egyptian elite got a little nervous, didn't they? Look how this plays out in verses 9 to 11. Let's read that. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. You notice what's happening here? The king of Egypt saw them as a threat because he could no longer control them. So he used a tactic of fear to scare his people into mistreating the Israelites. And to, to achieve this, he had to dehumanize them, didn't he? he had to, and, and he had to demoralize them just in case they actually started thinking that they were full citizens of the land. Man, the, the problem here, though, is, is as we've seen in many empires throughout the years, um, the more you oppress a people, often the stronger that people gets. Um, Those scarce tactics were working with his own people. The Israelites were not becoming what he wanted them to be. Let's look at that in verse 12. He says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians, what? 
the Egyptians were in dread. They believed this fear because they saw these people multiplying. They were in dread of the people of Israel. So Egypt goes a step even further, don't they, in their dehumanization attempts. Look at verses 13 to 14. It says, so they, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Slaves. That's the lowest you can go, isn't it? Slavery is a ruthless attempt to turn humans, to turn image bearers of God into property that can be sold, used, abused, sent. And look, once you do that, um, once you dehumanize the other, you can do just about anything to them, can't you? So the Egyptians did what people tend to do once they have turned the other into a dehumanized object of fear. They went for their children. And for boys in particular, Hebrew males became an object of fear. Um, and it became a law to abort them upon birth. I mean, think, think about the implications of this. Let's read that. This is verses 15 and 16. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So what was originally an exaggerated sense of fear suddenly became legislation, didn't it? The law of the land commanded midwives to kill babies solely because of their ethnicity. Think of the implications of this. Think of the fear um, of the Israelites. Can you imagine what their prayers would be? I'm pretty sure they, won't re- they weren't rationalizing to each other saying, oh, I'm, I'm sure this law is good for something. It'll be okay. I'm sure they weren't, they weren't trying to console each other with sentences like, oh, I'm sure it's for the best or something better will come out of this. No, they're crying out in prophetic grief in a prayer that's very familiar to too many people groups, to too many individuals throughout our history. They were praying, oh God, where are you now? Oh God, where are those promises of old where you said you'd save us and you'd be with us? God, where is that plan that you told us about to release us from this land? God, will this ever end? Or even worse, God, is this the end? God, where are you now? And, and you see, that this isn't just about an evil king in Egypt. God could take a king out, but what, there, there's a systemic problem underneath this. You see, this evil king was leading the charge, but his people were happy to follow. There's the tragedy of this story. And this reveals something of the backward logic that this civilization was based on and many other civilizations continue to be based on. You see, the people of the land, the full citizens, were getting all kinds of personal benefits from this, right? We, we heard about it. They built new cities and new temples, and they got to have slaves working for them, and they got to benefit from this system. So they became convinced, and they started believing what the Pharaoh was saying, that these people aren't worth as much as you are. They readily believed the lie that Hebrews were to be feared. They didn't deserve to be equal. So they engaged in the massacre. Or at least most of them did. And finally in this story we get a little glimmer of hope. Because there's always a resistance when evil happens. Always. There's always a resistance. There's always someone who doesn't believe the story. And who says no this is not the way things work. Someone who doesn't buy into pragmatic arguments that enhance the kingdom or enhance our own lives. And they resisted, as we'll see in a second, even though it meant going against the law of the land and putting their own lives at risk. And curiously, 
these weren't the political or intellectual leaders of the land. I mean, some of you are nodding and saying, of course they're not. But, but it's interesting because we normally tell the story as, you know, here are these great wise leaders that led us into places, but those aren't the ones that the Bible's pointing to. Let's, let's see who the Bible's pointing to as our heroes. Let's read verses 17 to 21. It said, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And so, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, oh, well, I mean, you can just imagine this moment, right? Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Um, they're vigorous and give birth before the midwives comes to them. They're lying. And the Bible's saying, this is great. You get that? You get that there's this resistance from below that requires doing certain things that don't always fit in the way we think. And look what it says at the end, verse 21. It says, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Wow. So we have our first heroes of the story, don't we? Shifra and Pua. And it's interesting because their names are remembered here. Has anyone read the name of the Pharaoh? We have no idea who the Pharaoh is. The Bible doesn't give him the honor of a name in Scripture, but he gives these women. Their names are lifted up and remembered forever. Isn't that interesting? And they're heroes, why? Because they feared God above this emperor who was taking God's power into his hands, who thought he was divine and thought he could decide who's going to serve him and who's not going to. They understood that God's image in all human beings meant that these babies matter, that their lives matter, that these babies, even the moment they're born, even when they're that small and that tiny, they still matter. Regardless of their color and background, regardless of whether they were protected by the law or not, they deeply understood God's desire to preserve life. Even, and listen to this, even amongst the immigrant, the foreigner, the one who the law of the land said deserved not to live. This is powerful. They're standing up against laws because they knew that God valued life above anything else. And, and this, is, this is what, so the scripture's pointing to them and saying, these are heroes. Um, the problem is this glimmer of hope didn't last too long. Read down with me in verse 22. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. <laughs> Two things here. First, Pharaoh clearly didn't realize that the real threat to his kingdom was women. That happens quite often. <laughs> so just, let's, let's just put that down there. And, and, the, and the scripture's bringing that up as we'll see a little more. But secondly, he realized it wasn't enough to, to hire a few people to kill. He had to make the law of the land that every Egyptian was obliged to kill Hebrew male babies. Can, can you imagine the panic at this moment? Egyptians who had neighbors they didn't like too much saying, this is my chance. I can go in doors being banged down. Children being ripped from their mothers. All Hebrew males were now a threat to national security. Can you imagine what these women would be crying as their babies were ripped away from them? Imagine what they prayed as they heard the new law, which made them the object of free looting and killing for their neighbors. Oh, God, where are you now? Oh, God, where are you now? And then we see a second glimmer of hope. We see a faithful family, two women again that devise a plan that's 
This is what Getachew read for us this morning. Let me just read it again. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, he hid him three months. Can you imagine hiding a crying baby three months? Uh, that's our first miracle. Um, but when she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it amongst the reeds by the riverbank. I mean, this is, Pharaoh was saying, any male child, you have to throw him into the Nile. So they, they put a basket and said, well, we're, we're putting him in the Nile. He's just floating. Um, <laughs> and his sister, here's the other woman in the story. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. They had a plan. They had a strategy. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew what child this was. And then his sister, this is Moses' sister, comes out of the reeds. Hey! Um, And he says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and, and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And this comes from, in um, Hebrew, uh, Moses sounds like I drew him out of the water. In Egyptian, Moses means my son. She adopted this child. And you see, there's a number of miracles already happening here, isn't there? And it it gets us a little excited in the text. Because first we have a newborn crying baby remaining hidden for three months, right? We saw that. Then he stays afloat in this basket kind of thing. I don't don't know how that happened. Um, And he's discovered, not not by some random Egyptian person, he's discovered by the most powerful family in Egypt, this woman's dad was the one passing all these laws. And this family, the, the family that legislated death for Hebrews, keeps the child. That's astounding. This, this, this should make our eyes pop out at this text. Because rather than seeing a dirty, kind of, kind of illegal, ugly child in this, in this basket, a child that wasn't supposed to, to live, what Pharaoh's daughter saw was a miracle for herself. She said, I, have a, I can have a son. I can adopt this child. So she does against the laws of the land, against what her parents were trying to achieve, against the belief um, that she was superior in some way, Pharaoh's daughter somehow knows what to do. And, and, and it's interesting, right, because this story is starting to point us, we start feeling this is it. This is it. God did a miracle. He's putting this child finally in the right family. He's going to gain the right influence and the right power to free us as a people. Uh, and, you know, we, we read later on that he gets the best education in the country. And not only does he become a first-class citizen, unlike the rest of his people, but he actually becomes part of the elite. According to, to the historian Josephus, Josephus, as he looked back into this, he said, Moses was probably being groomed to either be the governor of Egypt or at least one of the high ministers, one of the high governors. We're talking about someone being groomed to be the best. Can you imagine the hope that was whispered throughout the Hebrews? Saying, finally... God's doing something. But notice here, the first glimpse Exodus gives us into the life of Moses. 
the first story, Moses himself, because Moses probably was the author of this book, the first story he writes about himself. Let's read this. This is verses 11 to 12. It says, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Notice what's happening here? See, Moses sees the problem. He knew he was a Hebrew. He knew his people were in danger. And so he decided to take the solution into his own hands. He was ready to be God's plan. He said, people, God's plan is finally here. You can, you can worship me now. Maybe not worship me, but you can follow me now. And he, because he thought he wasn't like the rest of his people. He was the elite. He didn't want to wait. He didn't want to be stuck in this prophetic grief. He didn't want his prayer to be, oh God, where are you now? And he had the means. He had the education. He knew the ways of the empire, so he imitated them to the T. And actually, in the, in the Hebrew text, this is quite astounding because the word um, where, where it says an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, that same verb is the verb that's used of Moses killing the other man. He imitated exactly what the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew he did to the Egyptian an eye for an eye kind of deal. And he thought, this will finally get me recognition amongst my people. And maybe the Egyptians will start to fear me. He expected this to work. He thought this would give him the position of power and influence he needed over his own people to free them. But it didn't work. Not only did this cause the Egyptians to turn on him, but his own people rejected them. Let's, let's read on, verses 13 to 15. It says, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man, the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill us? Or sorry, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely this thing is known. And in the wrong way. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. All Moses had hoped for failed his own people rejected him first they didn't want another egyptian over them and pharaoh persecuted him as well because the tactics of the empire only work going one way you can't work them the other way around from the bottom up so moses is exiled he achieved nothing with the ways of egypt and can you imagine the cry going out through the israelites again our hope is gone oh god where are you now what do we do now? And, and, and the empire's celebrating, right? They're going, empire one, Hebrews zero. We did it. We exiled the guy. We're good. And at this point, the story in our text, and, and, and we're getting near the end, but the story starts feeling a little different. You see, we, we've gotten to the bottom, and all hope is completely lost. And for some people, that's where the story ends often. But the feel of the narrative starts changing. Because you see, in his exile, Moses begins a journey down, from his position of privilege, from his position of power and the confidence that he himself can achieve greatness to start feeling the pain of his people in his own skin and his own bones. He became an immigrant. He became a foreigner, a sojourner at the mercy and the hospitality of the Midianites, which again is a huge irony because the Midianites were the people that had bought Joseph, if you remember this. They were the Bedouins that were, were going through the desert. They had bought Joseph as a slave and ended up bringing him to Egypt. So they come back in the story, and now Moses goes back to them, and they welcome him amongst them. So God, 
God starts giving Moses this opportunity to stand with his people rather than to stand over them, to empathize with them rather than to sympathize. And God showed him mercy through these foreigners. Let's read this. This is verses 16 to 20. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian. Notice that? They identify Moses as an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread with us. In fact, not only do they welcome Moses as a foreigner, they feed him, but they give him something more. They make him a full citizen. Look at this in verse 21. It says, And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he, the man, gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Wow. They gave him their daughter. Look, you, you don't do that to people you consider inferior. We're talking about an interracial mixed marriage. I mean, this, this was unheard of in the time, and it still is unheard of in many parts, even in this country. It's still extremely rare. rare. And I mean, this is something Christians struggle with. Um, even in our churches, recently I, w- I was hearing one of my favorite preachers. His name is Gabriel Salguero, um, and he's a Latino, as you can imagine, with that name. And he was talking about multi-ethnic churches, and he made this point. I just want to read this to you. He says, in the secular culture, the threshold is so low He says, it's tolerance. That's what we do amongst races, amongst peoples. And he says, I don't want you to tolerate me. You're not my sister or my brother if you tolerate me. I want you to celebrate me. I want to be your familia, tu hermano, tu hermana. He says, the question of Christianity is not, can I be your brother and worship with you in your church? The question of Christianity is, can I marry your sister and be your (laughs) brother-in-law? You get that? that? That rings a little deeper. And here, it's not, it's not the Israelites, it's not the Egyptians, it's the Midianites that do this. And God's starting to show us stuff through this text. And the story starts feeling differently. But it's not the end either. For Moses, this is still a bittersweet period. He's in exile. Some of you know what I'm talking about here. Even if you're in exile, if you're in another land and you're living well, your heart still hurts and aches for the land back home. And I can tell you, Martha and I have experienced a little bit of this as we've lived here for four years Um, And we've seen Spain go through one of the toughest economic recessions that's ever been through. And we're here, we have jobs, we have a place to live, but our heart aches for our land. And this is nothing, this is nothing compared to what Moses is thinking. He is there with his wife, with his family, yet still he feels the pain of his people. This is what God wanted him to be in. And and as he's learning this lesson, he does what people do when they learn a really important lesson, especially back in the day. He names his son after that. (laughs) So we look at this in verse 22. She said, she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. That's what that word sounds like. So Moses begins to acknowledge and own his status as an exile, as a foreigner. And this means that he continues to feel the pain of the people. Day by day, his prayers begin to transform. Rather than saying, God, I'm the answer to your prayer, he's probably starting to say, God, where are you now with my people? Where are you now? And for the people of Israel, the cry doesn't change either, does it? They're still suffering. They're still praying, God, where are you now? And for many of us today, 
this is where the story is in our lives. Some of us may have this prayer on our lips as we came in this morning. We look around our world, we engage with social injustices, or, or maybe it's just in our personal life, stuff has just hit us in so many ways, and we're crying out, God, where are you now? And let me tell you this morning, I want to encourage you in that cry. You see, the story isn't about, oh, the people shouldn't have been crying because God was working. No, it says the, the people were crying, and that's what moved God. And I want to encourage you this morning, press into that groaning if that's a moment. God's not afraid of groaning. It's not going to emotionally damage God to hear you ask him, where are you, God? Show me where you are. That's what, in fact, sometimes he puts us through these moments as he's done with Moses so that we get to a point where we realize we are not the hope of the world. We are not a, a, a light that stands on any kind of hill. We, we depend on God. He's the only one that can save. And sometimes it takes us to, to get into exile to realize that. You, are we understanding what we're saying here? Sometimes God will take us into exile so that we finally understand that he is the only hope and we'll finally realize that we have nothing to offer in this. You see, until we see the world as it is, until we call evil, evil, and good, good, until we see the desperate situation of even our own hearts, we're gonna keep thinking that we can solve this, that we are the solutions to our own problems. But for the Israelites now and for Moses, they know there's nothing left. And at this point, something happens in the story. Something changes because the God that we serve is not deaf. He is not forgetful. The God that we serve is not blind and he is not ignorant. Let's look at the last verses of this chapter. Verses 23 to 25. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Still don't know his name. And the people of Israel groaned because of the slavery and they cried out for help. And their cry from re for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard God remembered, God saw, and God knew in the midst of the cries for God's presence, for God's plan, this truth comes down like fresh rain after one of these hot summer Kansas City weeks. It says, God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. This indeed is the, question, is the answer to the question throughout this entire text. Oh God, where are you now? God answers and he says, I hear, I remember, I see, I know our God hears, our God remembers, our God sees, and our God knows. In the midst of the suffering and the pain, when it all just seems to get worse, and even the slightest glimmers of hope are squashed, God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. And friends, this is the God that called Moses. This is the God that's calling Getachu and calling the people that he's sending into these places where their lives are at danger because they're saying, this is not the way. This is not the way to solve our problems. Violence is not the way. This is the God that is calling each one of us this morning to trust in him fully for our lives, for the lives of our neighborhoods, and for the lives of our cities and countries. So this morning, this is what I want to say to you. Trust in this God. Trust in the God who hears and remembers, who sees, and who knows. And some of you may, may object. You'll say, Kenny, well, that, that sounds great, but this God, this is an old story. And, and maybe it's true for the Israelites, I don't know, but, but, but how does that affect us today? Maybe this God only heard and saw then, but how do we know today? How do we know that he's present in our injustices today? 
And here's the answer, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You see, this story is just the beginning. Jesus is the end. In Jesus, we see God working out his plans like no one else would. In Philippians 2, we're given a picture of this, right? It says, Jesus, although he was in the form of God, he had all the privileges of God. What did he do? He emptied himself. He became his nothing. He became so low, he became what? Do you remember what it says there? He became a slave. That's the language in Philippians. God came. He didn't just send Moses this time. He came down himself, became a slave, and stood amongst us and suffered with us and, in fact, suffered for us. Rather than taking lives and conquering the world by force, what did Jesus do? He gave his life up. And you see that this is important to us because all of us have a little bit of Egypt in us. We need to be careful not be quickly to identi- not quickly identify with Israel because all of us, all of us have some Egypt. And sorry, if anyone's Egyptian here, I'm referring to ancient Egypt. We're all involved in oppressing others and finding ways to position ourselves above the person who sits next to us, trying to make a point that we deserve more, we deserve better, right? We'll use whatever we can to justify it. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's our skin color. Um, maybe we're a little more subtle than that. and we, which is, It's our culture, our education, or our country's just doing better, so we deserve more. Friends, we're right there with Pharaoh and his blindly obedient people. So when Jesus came, when God came, his judgment was that we were guilty. We deserved death. He had heard and he had seen what we really were like, what we really did in the secret. We deserve judgment like the Egyptians. We deserve death. But instead of giving it to us, he took it upon himself. That's our God. And that that means that we all have a little bit of Israel in us as well, in a sense. Not in our own merit. And in fact, Israel didn't either. God said, I chose to love you because I love you because I love you. You did nothing to deserve this. And God chooses to love you as well this morning. To love you more than you ever dared to imagine anyone could love you. Not because of your own merit, but because he is the God of love. So when Jesus came, when God came, his love for us became evident in this. He heard our cries He's seen our pain, and he decided to take that upon himself, to fill it fully. He walked with us. He cried with us. He suffered for us, and he suffered so that our suffering would have a purpose, so that we could turn to him and let him guide us into a promised land of eternal rest. This is what we hold on to, this God who sees and hears. So this morning, I want to urge you trust in this God. He's worthy of our trust. For our broken world, for our broken hearts, trust in the God who hears and remembers, who sees and knows. As you embrace this groaning like Moses, and you relentlessly commit to faithfulness in the small things like these midwives in Egypt, trust in God who hears and remembers, who sees and knows. And as you embrace your neighbor like the Midianites, embrace Moses and work for the common good of the other, even if that doesn't benefit you, and maybe even risks your freedom or your life. Trust in God who hears and remembers, who sees and knows.